Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And I have with me today, Sunshine Vortigern, who is the uh, part owner of Round Right Farm. And she and her husband, Steve, uh, farm in West Virginia. They met in graduate school, uh, gardened for one summer, and then went ahead and started building a farm on their own. And so for 15 years, they have been farming at Round Right Farm in the um, Allegheny Plateau in West Virginia. So they built a 350-member CSA very successfully and uh, high tunnels and have transitioned in the last couple of years to selling through uh, mostly online their products through an online store platform. And uh, now they're actually transitioning to uh, new opportunities and looking for someone to um, take over their farm in West Virginia. So hopefully I said that right. Welcome to the podcast, Sunshine. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share what we've uh, learned and done here. It's really exciting to be here. All right. So talk to us a little bit about an overview of the farming operation as it is right now. Sure. So we are largely a CSA farm. Uh, Overwhelmingly, our sales come from CSA. Uh, which we call a farm share. And um, we do year-round operations. We have about 180 year-round members. And then during the summer, we go up to, uh, this summer, it will be 350. Last year, we had a COVID bump, so it was more like 380. Um, The summer program for us is a 24-week summer program. Um, We hold people in for the fall as well, because we really discovered that the fall was one of the easiest times to grow. So our summer program includes the fall. And then for our year-round members, they get about 42 weeks of delivery. Um, we go down to a bi-weekly schedule for the month of January through March because it, the winter weather here can make it kind of hard to get out of here. Um, we raise about six acres of crops. Um, that includes outside, and then we have three tunnels and three-quarters of an acre of asparagus. Um, our CSA is run through a free choice online, um, fully customizable platform, which we designed and um, have had built for us. And our labor is my husband and I, a driver who does our driving two days a week, and then three experienced H2A workers. Um, so that's, that's basically it. Wow, that's tight. And yeah. then how many, how many greenhouses do you have? Uh, well, we just have three tunnels, and then we do have a greenhouse where we start uh, the majority of the plants that we need to transplant. Okay, gotcha. Now, talk mm-hmm. to us about the, you have 41 acres, I think, is the farm. What's the yeah. soil type? Uh, so we are a, let's see, but the soil type is called climber. It's supposedly really good for root crops, especially, and we have really found that to be true. Um, it's definitely very rocky in places, but it tills up really nice and soft, especially after we've uh, built it up over years through cover cropping, just um, treating it nicely. So we, we feel really lucky to have really beautiful, healthy soil. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, background. Before you got star- started farming, what was your um, job or what was your background? So 
back to go kind of back to the beginning, my parents were back to the landers in the 70s. So I was raised on like a hundred acre wilderness, basically in Kentucky. Uh, they moved there from the West Coast and, uh, and bought this piece of land that they had to hike in and out of. And so I kind of got modeled uh, at an early age, self-sustainability. They built their own log cabin from scratch. Um, you know, we had the outhouse, all the, all the things. And um, so it, it wasn't working for them. Uh, at some point, they were, they were feeling kind of isolated and they had no electricity, running water, et cetera. So they moved us into the city. Um, but my dad was self-employed my whole life and they always had gardens. And that sort of set the stage for the idea that um, I could work outside of, you know, the norm. And so I had a corporate job at one point. Um, but when I met my husband in grad school, uh, we were both really getting interested in sustainable living. And um, we ended up going back to my dad's farm in Kentucky, um, and which he had bought another farm again, because he missed it. And so um, we spent some time there and then ended up taking a farming apprenticeship here in this area in Oakland, Maryland, which is about 19 miles from where our farm is now. And we, we were really lucky to find good mentors and fall in love with the area and find a piece of land that worked for us. So that's, that's kind of how we landed here and ended up doing what we were doing. All right. So talk to us a little bit about as you built the farm, kind of what were your big takeaways from, you know, the ground up? So when we got started, we, where we apprenticed, we really learned that it was going to be super important for us to stay tight at first. So we took a really, really measured approach at first. We only had 20 CSA members to start out with and attended one farmer's market, started with a pretty small garden and just made sure that we had um, the right infrastructure for that size. But we quickly learned, you know, those first three years, we really were not turning a profit. And so we learned, okay, well, if we're going to actually make a living and make this work, because neither of us were willing to work off farm, we, we decided early on, either the farm is going to pay our bills, um, or we're going to do something else. And so we kind of demanded that of the farm. And so we just kept pushing and we were lucky enough to make contact with Red Earth Farm, uh, which was I think outside of Philadelphia at that time. And they were doing a customizable CSA and Steve heard them speak at PASA and his eyes really got opened up to a new way of thinking about doing CSA. And so we actually went and worked with them for a couple of days and basically asked them a lot of questions and decided we were going to move our CSA in a new direction. And that was really when we started to see that we could make a living from uh, what we were doing here. Gotcha. So it took a couple of years before you yeah. actually saw that things were going to actually be able to pay the bills. Yes. Yeah. I, we kept calling our third year, our do or die year. Like if we didn't turn a profit by the end of the year, we were gonna, we were going to mm -hmm. move on and do something else. So um, we worked so hard to make sure that it, it was a do instead of a die. <laughs> we really killed yeah. ourselves yeah. Um, because we both really wanted it to work. And so um, we pushed ourselves pretty, pretty hard that year. Um, and we both said we'd never do that again, but we also said, okay, we want to stay here. We just have to find a different way to do it. So, And <laughs> customizable CSA was that for you? For us, yes, it was definitely. And then... Um, so then we had to go out at that time. There really were not any software platforms that were offering that. And um, 
we wanted something a little different from what Red Earth Farm was doing. And so we ended up, um, my husband found us a software developer and he was able to build us something over the winter. At that time, we weren't doing year round farming. So we spent that winter really building it so that um, we could be ready to come into the fourth year with something new. Okay. So then, so your software basic, is it, uh, is it built on any specific platform or is it? Um... It's, a, it's a PHP based platform. Um, so, so for us, it just appears like a, a web-based database that we okay. access, but, um, but yeah, it is built in PHP. Okay, so then when you, that works, so then basically members sign up in the spring or whenever they sign up, they have an account and then they can log in to select the week's products or how does that work? Yeah, so for us right now, for instance, we offer two delivery days. So each of those delivery days have, has its own unique uh, ordering period essentially. So they have a couple days during the week when they can log in, we build a box for them and then they can come in and they can trade things out. And when we first started, we only let them trade out for other veggie items that we raised here on the farm. Um, since then, we've greatly expanded our partnerships with other local producers. And we also decided to open it up to allow them to trade out any veggies they have there. We always build the box around our own veggies, but then, um, or a, maybe a few vegetables that we bought in from other local producers if, if we're really feeling like our, um, we don't have enough variety for whatever weather reasons, um, but that's relatively rare. Um, and then they're allowed to trade um, their veggies out for anything that we list. So we, we carry a wide variety of things like um, cheese, eggs, we do a locally roasted coffee, maple syrup, honey, um, some spice mixes that are uh, designed around recipes of whatever's in season at that time. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of what we do. Oh, cool. So talk to me about the, the, the spice mixes. Is that something you guys do or do you work with someone to bring that, pull that together? No, that's really a fun story for me because we had this family that was one of our best CSA supporters. They always ordered, you know, sometimes two to three boxes every week. They're a larger uh, Indian family. And um, the mother-in-law of the woman who signed up with us is an amazing cook. And one day the woman called me and she said, hey, my mother-in-law is an amazing cook and she really wants to start a little business on the side and i thought of you guys and i thought if she could use some of her you know spices and make them up based around recipes of what you have in season then uh it might be a really awesome thing for your members for new things that they can do with the same old veggies Mm -hmm. and i absolutely love them i mean there's a there's we have one that's uh, a zucchini mix we have one that is a spinach mix that just makes this amazing sog and um, yeah, it's just really fun to have that as an additional thing. Very nice. All right, so let's talk about a little about the management of the farm because you got a really tight crew, um, yeah. and now you've dialed it in. I mean, being 15 years in means you're pretty dialed. Yes. Uh, but but I'm sure there's always still endless tasks to be done. What systems do you use to you know prioritize? Uh, well, for me, I I am tied to my smartphone, of course, and specifically mm-hmm. to the app uh, that's called Todoist. I, I like, yep. can't live without it. <laughs> and that really helps me because I, whenever I have anything that crosses my mind, like, oh, I really need to take care of that, 
um, you know, I, then I'm able to jot it down and then I can keep moving it forward if, if I'm not able to get, get it done. And then two, when I'm having conversations with Steve and he tells me, oh, you know, we should get this done or that done. It's really imperative that, you know, with everything else on my mind that I write that down so that I can make sure and get that communicated out to my crew. Um, so that's, and, or, you know, how it is with farming too, you can't always do that thing on that day because yes. of weather or, or other things. So too, that really keeps me focused on the long-term goals, the short-term goals. Um, that's something I'm the only one on this farm who uses it. Um, but it's essential to my peace of mind. Um, and then for me too, our website is like the center of all activity because I'm constantly um, either building an ordering period, checking on an ordering period, um, maybe updating inventory if we have more of something than I think we were going to have. So I add that to our inventory. And it also gives me like a real time um, idea of what we're going to need to be harvesting too. You know, some people, their idea of a customizable CSA is like, oh my God, that sounds so terrible. <laughs> and I say it's, it's not at all terrible because I see exactly what's happening and I have real time live data that shows me what people want and what they don't want. And it really confirms for me some of my suspicions about CSA and, um, you know, just what people that they they'll want something for two weeks, but definitely not four in a row. You know, they really are looking for some variety too. So, um, so that's something that really guides my life. Um, and then for me, it's really about lists. I'm just a list person. So usually I'm assigning tasks to my guys here on the farm by making a list on um, like a big whiteboard in our pack shed that lets them just kind of know what their day is going to look like and then we add to it as we go through the day i'll radio them um, and let them know if they need to add something to it but um, those are really the main things um, and then steve and i have pretty clear defined roles too so that it's so we're not stepping too much on each other's toes gotcha gotcha now talk about that because i know that's super important the what are your roles and how did how did you get that process of making sure who does what on the farm some of it had to do with just like kind, kind of natural proclivities, like there was the need for one of us to be a mechanic and it was not going to be me. I wasn't interested at all. Okay. And, and he was, he was interested in learning that. Um, so that was good. We just, that was his. He's also loves to look at spreadsheets and I don't. And so he naturally became the bookkeeper. Um, so that was an easy one. I'm a, I'm a very task oriented, um, put my head down and get my list done kind of person, which makes me really um, important to be the person who's carrying on with daily life, you know, making sure that daily life is humming along. And he's really more of a global thinker, big, big picture person. So that he's our strategic planner, you know, like if you look at our org chart for a tiny little um, thing, he's really the CEO because he's looking at what's coming next where are we going, um, making some important R&D decisions, how we're going to invest, what we're going to invest back into the farm, those kind of things. Um, so that puts me in the position where I'm really the harvest and the garden manager. And then he's in charge of a lot of the tractor work, or at least designating who's going to do the tractor work, because two of our H2A guys are trained in the tractor work. So he'll, he'll kind of get them started on something, but then be able to walk away too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. And he's also, he also is really 
huge into science. I'm, I'm an, I'm an English person. He's the science person. So he really likes delve into the nitty gritty of the soil tests and really dial in some of the amendments and other things we're going to do. So that's his specialty as well. Okay. All right. So you're more the sales, the back end, the marketing side. He's yeah. more of the field management slash science and mechanic. Yes. Okay. Very cool. All right. So then talk to us about like what, a, and again, there's no typical day on a farm, but like for you, what does a day look like? Um, for me, like the, basically the first thing I do after I get out of bed is look at my to do list. Like what did I get done yesterday? What's coming up? And then I really try to visualize my day. So I understand um, there's always certain things I have to stay one step ahead of my guys um, to make sure they can just move along. You know, so if we need to source something like I need to go and buy some supplies, I make sure that that happens. Um, if I need to make sure that we're ordering something so that as we're running low, or I'm just, uh, making sure that something I think we're going to need is already here in one of our sheds or something like that. And then also I'm spending time walking through the fields or the tunnels. So I can kind of also start to visualize what's coming up over the next couple of days too. So things don't catch me by surprise. So for me, really trying to see ahead of ahead of time, what my day is going to look like and what everybody else's day is going to look like is super key for me to be able to not feel overwhelmed by things. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So then, and let's talk about, we've got the, so we've got the tasks, we got how you're moving through that. And then are you doing a lot of direction of the, the, the crews or is that more your husband? Cause he's managing more of the farm side. It's more, it's more me. I do a lot of the, um, I'm handing them their harvest lists that lets them know kind of what they're getting done. I'm talking through any details of what's happening in the pack shed. Um, it's mostly when they're going to be on the tractors or, um, yeah, it's mostly tractor work where he's really getting involved in what they're doing. I'm also making decisions about when we're transplanting things. I'm the one who hands them the lists for uh, if they're doing work in the greenhouse, how many trays they need to do, what they're seeding, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah. What is your seeding uh, system in the greenhouse? Do you guys use a, a vacuum seeder or a drop seeder or just by hand? We do by hand. We, we actually have, use soil blocks and we have this amazing soil block uh, maker machine, which I absolutely love. I remember what it was like to be standing there, um, but I love it. It's from, I think the Netherlands and it, it's great. It just pumps them out. And all you have to do is kind of just scoop off the, scoop the soil blocks off and set them onto trays. And then we did try to design a vacuum seeder, but there was enough variability with the soil blocks that we mm -hmm. just couldn't quite dial it in. Um, I'm lucky because my guys, uh, work quickly and pretty much everything that I give them. So I don't have to worry too much about efficiency. Um, they, they do it in a way that it doesn't make me feel like we're, we're losing our, too much time on it. So it's yeah. working for us. All right. So let's talk about that soil blocker for a second, because I've obviously would love to kick the plastic habit. And again, we use hard plastic trays. So we're using them for 20 plus years, but um, the best transplants I ever grew and the best broccoli I ever grew in the field came through soil blocks. I just feel like they produce yeah. the best transplant you can. Um, uh, so what soil mix are you using through this blocking system? Uh, we use something that we get from Ohio earth. 
we've we've liked it. We've used it for several several years and are really happy with the quality of it. It, it produces beautiful soil blocks, um, and I wouldn't complain about it for any reason. Okay, all right. So it's using one of their mixes. It's expensive. Um, it's about I think it's somewhere around seven dollars a bag, and we only get two and a half, maybe three trays out of each bag once it's wet down. But, yep. um, but it, it's very well worth it. You're right. Like we did try to make the change at one point because um, we were trained with soil blocks. That's all I ever knew. And then we had some people come work on our farm one year who had only ever done plug trays. They were like, why are you doing it this way? It seems like a lot more work. And they seemed very adept at being able to, you know, so they kind of made us question it. So one year we kind of tried to switch over. We were doing kind of half 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 of uh -huh. our stuff in plug trays half in soil blocks and hands down the plants just always looked better coming out of those soil blocks so we just <laughs> we kicked it and went back to the other thing now of course there are some things like uh, squash and cucumbers those bigger seeded things that we have to start um we have to start in plug trays but other than that we do everything even we even do our peppers and our tomatoes in soil blocks and everything is um inch and a half blocks too. We could trade out our machine to make two inch blocks, but we just do inch and a half on everything. And then uh, sometimes our peppers get a little tall, but yeah. uh, we usually try to put them in small so they can just be in the ground faster. That's another thing about, I feel like sometimes you try to push or you end up thinking you can push the window for too long on plug trays and that can end up hurting you in the long run, so. All right. But what you've done there is you've created one system where everything is very similar. So it makes everything very easy in the greenhouse. Right. Yes. Yeah. No messing with multiple trace. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, I like that. I like that. Cause we're, I mean, we do, we do not only production for the fields, but we also do a lot of uh, vegetable transplants for sale. So we've got all sorts right. of stuff in the greenhouse. Yeah, if you were doing transplants that yeah, if you're doing for sale, you can't really just hand somebody a, <laughs> a flat of well on the bottom. I don't know. Actually, there was a farm at our farmer's market in uh, upstate New York in Saratoga, who did a thriving business of selling everything in soil blocks. That's awesome. That, yeah. I love that. And they just would give people um, like trays from, I think like a uh, beer trays, whatever the, you know, little, um, a little cardboard tray and people would just pick out and you know, a dollar transplant and they would huh. just pick out, you know, they want six of this, five of that. Now he would do like tomatoes and peppers and I think a four inch pot. So a bigger uh -huh. pot, but I think yeah. everything else, the broccoli, the lettuces, um, everything was in one and a half inch soil blocks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. I mean, I can understand why bigger farms would want to move away from soil blocking. And as we got bigger, that was when we were really like, wow, it's taking us so long to block all these things by hand. Uh -huh. And um, we were just lucky enough to come across a soil blocking machine that uh, somebody was selling here in the States and you don't see them very often. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was, that, was that Pete Johnson? Uh all I remember, my, it was my husband who did all of the coordination on it, but it was a farm where they had had one farm manager who had kind of brought in a bunch of equipment and then that farm manager wasn't there anymore and they, a new one came in and was kind of like, I don't know what to do with this stuff. Yeah. The farm just sold it. Yeah. So we were yeah. like, yay, we want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen it on 
uh, gosh, was it a thousand acre farm in Quebec is that they were doing, um, you know, iceberg lettuces, uh, I forget what else they were doing with it, but that they were using a soil blocking machine. It was pretty incredible to be there, stand there and just watch. It was automated blocking and automated seeding. So all you yeah, did in one end. Ours could do seeding, but we never really could figure out like. Uh, gotcha. We, we could do it, but it, it does have little tubes and like little plastic tubes yep. that you could drop the seed in. But we, for instance, one of the main things that we do is like a transplanted spinach and we need two seeds in there. Yes. So we were like, well, we're going to have to put it off, pull it off and then put, go through and yeah. it again. And then of course you're going to have times, uh, we've dialed it in more now, but when we were first using it, really learning it, you know, there would inevitably be some that trade, uh, some blocks that you're throwing out because you're like, oh, that one doesn't look great. So you're pulling it off or, or you're, you have somebody new who's not quite mixing the soil at the right uh, moisture level, which uh-huh. is critical. And so um, you would end up, and then if it was already seeded, you're like, oh, well, do I keep this terrible looking block because it has the seed in it? You know, so that's yeah. So. Yes. Yes. That is all aspects of when you try to now over-automatize the system. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, too, we raise 40 different crops. So oftentimes yeah. maybe we're producing 40 different trays, but it's going into like six different things, you know? So yeah. that's a little complicated too. Like how do you plan out like which lines go for which things? So. Yeah. And this one I saw in Canada, Quebec was literally just for lettuce. So, right. and they would make literally all day. I mean, they would make blocks all day for one type of lettuce. And then the next day they would switch to a different type. So yeah, very I feel different. like I can handle that, but yeah, with the <laughs> that, that would be a lot. <laughs> yes, yeah. All right, so let's talk about your, you said you had some mentors. Talk a little bit about that because obviously farming is tough and having the right mentors is so key. Yeah, uh, well, so first and foremost, I feel like my parents were really huge mentors to me just in that they were out-of-the-box thinkers. They were, you know, um, self-employed, always kind of just, going against the grain. And I, it was, it took a big leap for us to come here and just kind of go at it. And so Uh I feel like part of the courage that I had for even doing that came from them and uh, just a love of food, good, good, healthy food that was given to me by my parents from an early age too. Um, And then uh, beyond that, our our mentors specifically when we were apprenticing um, our Catherine and Max, um, Dubansky, who own Backbone Food Farm, and they're just 19 miles from us. Our kids are good friends. We're still close to them. And I just, I, especially with Catherine, she was like my model of, she was pregnant the summer that we were there. And so she set the bar so high for me of a super capable, amazing woman who was just kicking ass at farming and uh-huh. um, homeschooling her kids at the same time and just really showed me what somebody is capable of. And so I just really tried hard to model myself after her and, and everything that she was, and she cooked amazing food, just uh, like on all the, all the things she did them and she did them well and with grace and, and smiles. And I was really, really just amazed at what she could do. Um, beyond that also, we, we were lucky enough to find like a local godfather for farming. So um, a neighbor of ours about three miles from here, took us under his wing almost immediately, introduced us into the community, um, gives us farming advice almost daily, uh, has helped us with broken down things multiple times. You know, he really has taken good care of us and shepherded us into 
our daily life just right here in the neighborhood. And um, Paul Arnold, I would list as well. I was lucky enough to go and visit the Arnolds and stay with them for a couple days when we were thinking about moving to year-round farming. And I knew that they were really uh, big players in that market. And so I really wanted to see how they were doing that. And um, I was really lucky to get some really awesome quality time with Paul. And uh, I'm so grateful that he took the time to do that. And the whole family, I mean, their, their daughter and Sandy too. So that was really cool. And, um, and then my husband is another mentor. He's really, he sets the bar high and uh, he always like what we've done here was only possible because of his ability to dream. So he's really, he's really been a guiding light too for me personally. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about, you know, what makes a good mentor? Because there's obviously a lot of people who you go to for advice or something, but I think that mentor takes things to the next level. For, For me, a mentor, like even more, like it's not just about teaching, but it's really about doing. So, so somebody who you learn simply by watching what they do what they do and they don't do as well, you know? And uh, for, for me, what I've learned from any of those mentors, it's like tiny little things that they do uh, that, that you can't even, they, they might not even strike you at that time or, or certain little sentences, which they might say, but really stick with you for years and years. And sometimes they don't make sense until later too. That, that's definitely true. But somebody who really just shows that they're caring uh, about where you might end up and then just setting the highest example of, you know, um, grace, humility, <laughs> hard work. That, that's what's been important to me is just seeing how other people make it work for them and then try to do that myself. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely uh, agree with that. And I think one thing too, is, you know, there's things that they do, which you like, like when I started, we obviously Paul and Sandy Arnold mentored us for a number of years and we actually stored our root crops until we had a root cellar at their farm. And then we would go down and use their barrel washer because we didn't have a barrel washer and the barrel washer was, there was something broken on it. And, uh, it just, anyway, was broken. And every single time I was there, I'd get frustrated and be like, man, why doesn't Paul fix this? But what I learned to realize is, you know, Paul had literally, you know, dozens of lists in his mind and that was on the repair list. And that was pretty far down the repair list because you could still use the barrel washer. It was literally, you know, it was something that would save you eight seconds or 10 seconds every time you used it. And Paul knew that the 25 minutes it would take to fix it wasn't worth at that time, you know, fixing everything. Yeah. So, um, but it's, yeah, those little things you don't realize too. Like now I'm like, I absolutely get that. There's certain things, which I'm sure the team around here would be like, Michael, could you fix this? And I'd be like, yes, that's on this list, but it's way down here at the moment. So yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and knowing those priority lists too, that that's always been an interesting part of like, um, we did have an apprentice program for a long period of time. And that was kind of an ongoing thing, you know, is, is apprentices who come to you with absolutely no background in farming might ask you a question but you're like, yeah, we already, you know, we figured that out year three. You know? Yeah. We had ideas about that too, but we gave up on them quickly, you know? And um, so some of those things it, from the outside, it's like being a backseat driver, like, wow, it doesn't make any sense why they're doing that, but you have to be in it to really understand like, oh, okay. That this, And um, for me too, with some of my best mentors, it was that they quietly gave me advice, but didn't judge me when I didn't listen to them and let me 
let me figure it out that they were right over time. Yes. <laughs> and then when yes. I came back to them and said, hey, thanks so much for that advice. I'm now ready to listen. <laughs> they, didn't, they also didn't rub my face in it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Paul Arnold was the once in a while, he'd be like, well, you know, did you realize this? I told you this four years ago. And right. I was like, yeah, Paul, I know. I'm just now starting to listen. <laughs> so right. Yeah. So let's uh, let's say there was a magic reset button. What would you? What systems? What processes would you go back and put in place sooner on the farm? Um, I I would have gotten H two A workers earlier if I could have, <laughs> if I had like really fully come to realize we we were really deep into the idea that we really wanted to do an an apprenticeship program here, and that's not to say anything about you know I've had some amazing apprentices through the years, but um there's a real sacrifice that goes with being a farm that has apprentices. And that sacrifice is you have to start every single year with a completely new crew mm. and train them from the ground up. And I didn't really realize how much energy that took. Mm-hmm. And um, also like being, being fully available to them 24 seven was also pretty exhausting for me. I'm, I'm an introvert. And so um and we had very little infrastructure here. So we were living in a super tiny house. The living arrangements for our apprentices really wasn't quite adequate, to be honest. And so we were all kind of like living in small states, you know, systems here, and then working long days. And um, I would just be exhausted and not be able to give them my best. And I'm in such a better space now because I have HOA workers with, who have been with us. For, this is their fourth year. They know what they're doing. I can give them a list and I don't have to stand and train them through everything. And so I can move on to the managerial tasks that I could, didn't used to be able to do until like 10 o'clock for them sort of in a mothering way, which I already have three of my own children. So that like, I need to have enough left for them. And so though I, though I have many very fond memories of my apprenticeship years, I, I also feel like I might have been able to have a little bit more equilibrium and work less if we had moved into our H-way approach a little sooner. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is the pro-employee versus the person that's there to get an education and is learning on your dime. Yes, yes. <laughs> for, yeah. for me, after having done both, I greatly value having very experienced laborers here also who are very interested in making sure that they have the opportunity to come back you know uh, when you have an apprenticeship program which is done after you know eight nine months there's kind of a preset end date on that too and I found oftentimes that apprentices didn't really understand that um, their pay wasn't going to increase through the season because the second half of their apprenticeship was when they paid me back for everything I taught them. <laughs> yes. So there yes. was kind of like oftentimes a little bit of feeling like they were being taken advantage of, you know, and so uh, because they weren't being paid a full uh, hourly wage, we've now switched out of that. We have had more apprentices, like a few winter apprentices specifically in the last couple of years. And we just start them out at, a, at an hourly wage and we don't do like stipends like we used to. But, yeah. um, but I still I still really value coming into a season with people who already know what they're doing and um, are very interested in making sure that I'm happy with the work that they do so that they can come back again. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, um, you know, a lot of people ask us, like, are you going to do an apprenticeship program? And I'm like, not for any time soon, because right now 
we're building infrastructure. I don't have time to train people in every day. And I don't have the, frankly, like you said, I don't have the mental energy. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, you know, even during the, you know, the crew goes home at four o'clock and I'm, you know, obviously I've got probably a couple hours of tractor work or infrastructure building, but that needs to be me time where I can just be in my head and, yeah. uh, not doing it, not focusing on anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move a little bit. He actually right here. We'll stop and take a quick break in a minute. We'll be back with sunshine from round right farm. This podcast is brought to you by steward. And Dan Miller, CEO, is here to talk about what kinds of things should you get loans for on your farm? So we get all types of requests for loans. There's definitely uses that are much better than others. Um, Clear, measurable improvement in your business, whether that's revenue or expenses, is the best thing for a loan. You know, land is often common for loans. No one's expecting a farmer to buy land all cash. So the, the yeah. traditional loan in agriculture is to buy land. That's nice, but at the end of the day, you need other aspects of your business to, to grow. I find land is definitely important for the long term, but I don't think it's the first thing that should be the focus. I generally find equipment to be the highest leverage uh, use yeah. of funds because you can clearly see how it's going to drive more revenue or save lots of time. And it can be moved and relocated most of the time. So something that's movable, that's flexible, that's not locking you to a piece of land, but that can clearly drive revenue, I think is is what people should look for. Because you want to make sure that that funding is going to now increase revenue enough that you're going to be able to support it. We do see requests for working capital and operational funding. I think that's important paired with with equipment. You know, Mm -hmm. we're going to do some fencing, we're going to do delivery van, and we're also going to spend a few thousand dollars on marketing or our website. But the problem with just borrowing for, let's say, labor is you have nothing to back it up. You know, you have nothing to secure it against. And so I find working capital loans can often be uh, very difficult and challenging. So we find a kind of a mix of a, bit, a little bit of operational funding, um, a little bit of equipment, you know, maybe a $50,000 loan, 40000 of its equipment, 10000 is operational funding. That seems to be the biggest driving factor for the growth yeah. of the farm. And then later they can buy land, but often if they get a huge loan for land early on, they don't have the capital to then fund the yeah. actual operations of the business and they get stuck uh, behind on payments and, and with revenue not as high as it needs to be. Yeah, and I think that operating is so key right there because it's one thing to get a whole bunch of shiny new equipment, but if like for our hoop houses, there's labor to put those up, there's labor to you know assemble all that, to get that, you know get crop in the ground, all of that. Um, seeds, you know, uh, soil, heat, even that kind of stuff is really where it can kill people um, if they don't get that upfront along the way. And it's really stressful. And, and it's all blended. And, and that's why it's so hard to navigate funding because yeah. there's funding for land, funding for equipment, and then these kind of credit lines, but they're not, they're not mixed. So oftentimes you get approved for loan and then, okay, we'll fund this piece of equipment, but none of the labor that's needed to use it, or we'll fund this piece of land, but not the actual operation on top of it. And so that kind of segregation of funding makes it hard for farms because the farm is an integrated business with assets behind it and operation on top, which means you can generate a lot of cash flow for the funding. But if you, if you don't have all those elements together, so, I mean, soil is a classic one. I mean, most banks don't fund bringing in or soil because well yeah. you know what they can't auction it off necessarily <laughs> yeah. but at the end of the day it's needed for the farm and so you kind of get stuck in this box of uh of needing something i mean that, that's much of the reason why why steward was created of 
let's create funding design for what that farmer needs, not for what the box is of the product yes. that that lender offers. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your marketing here. Um, you've talked about the, the CSA model. How do you acquire new customers? We are actually really lucky because our reputation mostly precedes itself. And so um, mostly through word of mouth, um, we also have an amazing looking delivery vehicle that, and since we offer home delivery, we're moving through neighborhoods with um, a, a big box truck that has really nice looking signs on it. And so that also is our moving advertising. <laughs> and um, so those are really the main ways that we advertise without having to do any kind of blasts or anything. We were able to get to the 380 last year. And, you know, I'm not surprised that the numbers went back down a little bit this summer. I know a lot of people are planning on doing a lot of traveling. And so they feel like they can't mm. commit to the um, weekly deliveries of vegetables, which I totally understand. They haven't been able to go anywhere for a long time. Yeah. They're ready to go. And so I'm, I'm not feeling sad that we've gone back down. We're still better this year than we were two years ago. Um, so I'm happy with that. I feel like it's a, it's a very adequate number and we're at a size that easily maintains the financial needs of the farm. So. Yeah. So what you're saying is you haven't done like any paid traffic or trying to acquire new no. customers this year. Okay. No, yeah. none at all. And so really what, one of the main things we do is every single uh, December, we sit down and totally pick apart our website, redesign, like go at it and throw the baby out with the bathwater, look at it and just pretend we have nothing written and do it all over again. And that really just completely making sure that our website stays fresh, that we're really updating it to make sure it really reflects what's going on around here is, is, is really what I would say is what we do to make sure that when people come and look for us, what they find is, is uh, the information that they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm on your website right now. And I love the layout. Um, that's got, you know, what's up on top the, th the six different boxes. And then mm -hmm. as you we read your way down, it gives you, you know, trusting with the, you know, being able to see everything right there on one page is nice. Um, so and then when do you start signups? Is that in the, the January? Or how does that work? We normally do a re-enrollment period for our summer members in January. Yeah. Um, and, but it's rolling, it's rolling throughout the year. You know, we have year round members who leave us. We don't ask them to sign a commitment. Um, so we kind of just roll with the punches. I mean, when most people who sign up for a summer share stay with us, except if they end up having to leave. That's one thing our, our, because we service Morgantown, West Virginia, which is a university town, there's just the inevitable situation where somebody ends up getting a job and leaving or they thought they were, you know, and their plans yeah. change. And so we really don't think it's fair to punish people if they need to leave early. And so we just kind of um, know that that's going to happen. And so we might over-enroll a little bit to make sure and cover that. Um, I, I say over-enroll, but just we kind of set internal targets for ourselves and then um, are happy when we meet them. Um, so yeah, our, our enrollment period, our official one is in January for our summer members. And then every April, we ask our year-round members if they want to commit to another 12-month period, essentially. And they get automatically re-upped unless they tell us that they don't want to come back or if they want to convert back over to a summer share member instead. Um, 
So, and we do it in April for year-round members because um, May is our most popular month. <laughs> so we don't want to give that away to somebody who might want to move back to not being with us in the winter time. So, um, so yeah, we reserve May and December, which is typically a pretty popular time too, because people are stocking up for Christmas and stuff like that mm-hmm. for our, for our year round members. Now I'm looking at your pricing and it's interesting because like, let's say you buy a regular share, $101 a month, that's six to 10 items mm-hmm. that breaks down to, let's say it's 40 items, maybe it's 35 items. Um, at 35 items, that would be $3 an item or something like that. Are your, are your, uh, your sizes a little bit smaller or, or even a normal size bunch of beets or. So what, what we do, what we do is we just work with an average of a $25 box value that we're building those summer shares around. Gotcha. And so, um, so that's how we set our pricing. So we really try hard to just make sure that the makeup of what the value of what we put into the box adds up to around $25. And, you know, if we can't make it on one week, then I make up for it on another week. Um, and so we have a lot of members who pay upfront for the whole entire season, but we really about, I think it was about three years ago, we moved to also offering the ability to pay per month because we really felt like uh, CSA should be accessible to everyone, not just to somebody who can drop $600 all at once. Mm-hmm. So, and so it, our pricing on our individual items is very similar to what you would see at a farmer's market, you know, so it might have a dollar fifty bunch of radishes, it might have a $3 bunch of beets, it might have a bag of salad mix. And so the way our software works, they see the individual value of each of those items, and then they can trade it out. Um, and they can do a straight trade so they can replace it with something else, for instance, that costs $3, or they can spend $1.50 and then bank the, uh, that other $1.50 to spend another week. Wow. Okay. So that software is quite, uh, yeah, quite robust. It's, so very, let's, it's very flexible. Yep. All right. So let's talk a little bit about that because you said you, you licensed that to other farmers as well. And uh, obviously that's not on your website. Um, do you have a separate website for the software? Yeah, it's called Happy CSA, all one word. And we do have a separate website for that. Um, that is something that, um, I'm really proud to be able to share with other farmers. It's a very small group of farmers, but um, we did grow a little bit this year um, as there were more people realizing that software is a really important part of kind of weathering crazy things like pandemics. Um, mm-hmm. And as, as people kind of realize, like software doesn't have to be scary. Um, <laughs> it can be something that really makes your life easier. Um, so, so yeah, we do license it. Uh, we have a pretty affordable price structure and, Basically what happens is that they are licensing the ability to use those same databases. And so they have their own existing website and then that website hooks into um, like an entry page that we create for them. And then that allows their members to access all of the ordering and it allows them to access all of the customer information. It runs their sign up for them um, and it allows them to set up their own ordering periods and, and lots of other stuff. Very cool. Um, And then does it also allow like one-off orders as well? Yeah. So that's actually one of the awesome things last year, especially we, we can have um, what we call a la carte members ordering at the exact same time as our, as our regular share members. So that's an awesome way to increase your sales, especially um, 
when you have are having like a, a week where more people are having to go on vacation, then if you have a pretty solid, I have a, I have about probably 20 to 25 pretty solid uh, people who make an order for me every single week. They don't want to commit to the CSA for whatever reason, yeah. but they, but they still come in and they buy from us very regularly. And so they end up maybe spending over the course of a year, what they would have spent on a share, but they just feel like they have the freedom um, to not have to not have to and somehow for that for them that works and so it's no from my side it's no different i just make sure that i have enough inventory available um that that it can include them as well um obviously there are things they don't get access to when they're when short supply but um but yeah it, it works really well and people use it a lot too because they can get not just veggies but all of the other items that we have available too so it's it can be kind of uh pretty close to a full shopping experience sometimes unfortunately we can't get our hands on any dairy because of dairy laws here in west virginia uh, so yeah that's one major uh failing point which i would love to remedy but they can't so. yeah Yep. Yep. I understand that. Let's talk about uh, beginning farmers here. What do you think is the biggest mistake that you see beginning farmers making? Um, well, I would say uh, like weird vegetables. I know for myself, like I wanted to try all the vegetables and like you can get distracted and get like big eyes when you're looking at the seed catalogs and you just want to grow every, all the things. (laughs) And for me, it, it really like, paring it down and not making yourself go too too crazy. Like just always remembering that you can try, like you can add one new thing every year and kind of when you're first starting out, there's so much to learn that getting things dialed in on maybe, you know, 20 crops instead of 30 is a good Uh idea. And then you can add some new things Um, that, that, I say that mostly because I know I did it too much when I started and we kind of really learned as we went through, like, there are so many things we grew when we first started, which we don't even bother with anymore. And that, and but, but we keep our 350 person CSA happy. So. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that mental game for the first two seasons. I mean, especially for you, because you have like sink or swim mentality. Um, yeah. Did you feel overwhelmed? Um, I did. <laughs> I, I, those first three years are pretty much a haze of exhaustion. Um, and I was, I was pregnant during our second year. So that really increased the the haze. <laughs> I was really lucky enough to have my sister come stay with us for a while and help me out. She just basically took all of the physical burden off of me and let me sleep some. So that was really amazing. But for me, I just really had the desire to, show that we could do it. You know, there Mm. were definitely, especially in a little bit in the local farming community, like some, some older guys who looked at us like these California kids don't know what the heck they're doing. And, you know, who, who, one who said to me, like, yeah, I hate to burst your bubble, but you're never going to make any money in farming. And he's a dairy (laughs) farmer doing it the old way. And I'm like, I just, I didn't have the guts to tell him yet because I was so young. Like, yeah, I'll make money, don't you worry. But, you know, that was kind of on repeat. Like, no, I'm going to show this can be done. Um, So for me, it wasn't just about making money. It was about proving like we had it in us, even though we weren't, we didn't grow up on farms, that people can do it if they really 
have the persistence. I, th I think persistence for me and, and really having mentors that I saw have persistence and who didn't get just completely knocked over by bad things, you know, so you can have our, our, we, the first thing we did on this farm is build a high tunnel Andy's uh, design where it was duct tape and uh, plastic tubes. Yeah. I built one of those too. <laughs> and then the, we finished it. We were so proud of ourselves. We were like baby farmers. And then we had like 40 hour mile, like 40 mile an hour winds that night come from the East and literally flip it over. Oh, and like, that was, that was the beginning of farming for us was like showing up the next morning and being like, Oh, wow. <sighs> what do we do now? And there was snow on the ground and we were just, and we had like a little baby and we were like, what are we doing? You know? And so, but I just learned over the, over time, like you have to have persistence. You must be able to have the resilience to come back from those deeply like discouraging, you know, you walk out and an entire bed of kale has been eaten by groundhogs and you're just like, mm -hmm. no, what will I do now? You know? And you have to be able to get back on the horse. You have to just say, okay, that really sucked a lot, but what am I doing today? <laughs> you know, And it's kind of one day at a time, but yeah, I, I think for beginning farmers, you got to just keep digging deeper and find that resilience, um, which I don't think, I don't think non-farming life often asks of you, at least not here in America. Uh, I don't, I don't feel like I was properly coached in resilience by my life before I came here. Well, you know, it's really interesting because as I've been building this farm, I've had to work with a lot of trade people. I mean, a lot. Mm. We had like um, our our town made us get a, a commercial guy to hook up our gas, which mm -hmm. I mean, and we had to, obviously I had to work with some contractors to do grading and any one of those trades and obviously trades are different than, well, even like uh, a, a sign company. I had to work with a sign company for this, that, and the other, but the mm -hmm. level of the bar to enter those fields, yes, they have to be trained. So like do a license to be, you know, you have to be licensed. You have to get the license, but the level that they have to op do to operate their businesses is so low. I mean, the, the level of customer service, the level of excellence of work, it can be literally so low and you can still make money because yeah. I think there's just a massive need. I mean, a guy has an excavator and he can literally be busy all day, every day at hundred dollars an hour, because if right. you get someone good, they're $200 an hour and they're out four weeks. So, you know, but, but being a farmer, you have to have that incredible level of excellence to make. Cause I mean, you and I both know there's very few farmers out there that are actually making it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's 2% probably. I mean, if 5% of farmers make it to five years and then is it one or 2% actually make a living off their farm. So that level mm -hmm. of excellence to actually be a farmer and actually make it is very, 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 it has to be, you have to be really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but let's, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, you have to have that level of experience and that level of just up there to really be able to make it work. Get a man, so many hats. I mean, you have to be your own, as you said, you mechanic, you know, plumber, you have to be, um, your salesperson, web, de web designer, you know, all the things. So yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of hats to, to wear. Um, what would be your favorite farming tool? To be honest, my favorite farming tool is, is our website, our software. Okay. <laughs> and I know that sounds like a sales pitch, but it really is true. I feel it makes me feel so confident that the consumer experience is uh, one that my customers love and it's something that they mention. And, um, 
And I know that it's one that is resilient for different situations too, and so flexible that they can make it work for, for their crazy lives. And so for me, it helps me feel like, you know, already for me, farming is such a rewarding thing because I feel like I'm a part of solutions. You know, I'm, I'm a part of doing something that everyone has to do, which is eat. And I'm offering healthy food, which I feel like is so important to just the health of our entire society. And then on top of that, when I know that what I'm doing is, is giving people pleasure, you know, by letting them have choice and letting them um, add other things in that helps expand um, their access to other local farmers that they might not be able to do. Um, they might not be able to source those farms or be able to travel to those farms. And, and instead I'm sourcing those things, putting it into a box and dropping it off on their front door. I feel really good about that. And so for me, I, I don't think I would get as much pleasure out of farming nor be able to do my job nearly as well if I didn't have that um, tool at my disposal. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. Well, to, to, to really make that customer connection, because I think uh, you and I both the old uh, farming, you know, CSA model doesn't work for today's consumers. It did 20 years ago, maybe no. even 10 years ago, but now the consumer requires being able to be very, very flexible. Yeah, they, they really do. They, they, they demand choice and they demand one thing that I really saw when, when we opened up about 18 months ago to the idea of letting them have a fully uh, customizable, like a free trade to everything. When we switched from, um, like I, I mentioned the, um, that they can carry over the value of something. So say they yeah. started with a $5 value. We call that farm credit. So if they take $10 out and they only get a box that's valued at 15 that's fine. It's just when they log back in, they start with a $10 credit. We call it a farm credit. So then the next week they can order extra things. And so when we started to open up to the idea that, well, listen, the profit margin on us reselling other people's items is very similar to the profit margin on, on farm, on our farm goods, which is a very labor intensive, you know, person, like a very, yeah. very labor intensive process. What does it matter to us if one week somebody wants an entire box of vegetables and one week all they want is a bag of coffee and a piece of cheese? They're still supporting the local food market. They're still buying locally instead of going to Walmart or Kroger or whatever. And I'm still facilitating. They're still coming to me instead of leaving me in frustration because this week they didn't need as many vegetables. And Uh so... Um, we actually found that going in that direction of generosity of saying, okay, we will allow you to get whatever you want. Basically you're committing to spending $606 with us this season. And we don't refund that. At this, you can't, we have limits, you know, they can only, they can only hold up to $50 worth from week to week. And they have to spend that down. Um, we will not refund that to them. So they can always come back to us, like a gift card with us. You can't take that gift card and spend it somewhere else. You still have to spend it with us. But essentially, so that's essentially us saying, you will spend $606 with us over the course of this season. Um, but it doesn't really matter what you spend it on as long as you spend it on local food. And we really found that actually us opening up in that generosity we ended up getting more generosity back from our members because it started to open them up to ordering more things, which maybe in the past they would have said, well, I don't really want to add that on, you know, because I'm trying to stay on a budget, you know? And Uh so 
letting them try some of these other items and they discovered things that they didn't know they liked. And then it kind of felt like, oh, well, maybe I do want that. And maybe I do want to add it on. And so really just like, we also discovered that we could really tighten our outside garden and cut out some things, which we really were not selling that much of anyway, but we had this idea like, well, we're building these boxes around these vegetables. Well, it just, there were certain things which we didn't need to grow as much of. And so we've really become more lean and smart about how we grow things. And so we're also saving money on that end of labor. So we have the, the money to spend on the labor of sourcing and managing the inventory for those, those other items. But in the end, it's, it's not quite as exhausting as some of the farm work too. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really, it's been great. It's been great for our business and we're super proud of everything we carry too. We don't carry anything that we feel like is subpar. So yeah. we feel like we kind of curated a list. And I just wish that I had access to more things. That's been one thing, which here in West Virginia, I wish we had more amazing food partners to work with. Um, but, but it's just, I feel like we're about 10 years behind some other, <laughs> some yeah. other places. So um, I, I would like one major thing I would love to have is uh, fermented products. I don't yes. have any fermented products and I'm jonesing for like some amazing sauerkraut or kimchi or something, which would be shelf stable and which people would, I know benefit so much from in their health. So, uh, yeah. So you're, you are moving on and you are selling your farm. Talk to us a little bit about the decision and, uh, what's, what's, what's behind that? Well, so, um, we spent so much time through our years here on the farm of building infrastructure. I'm sure you know all about this. We built it or we bought a hay field 15 years ago, which literally had no infrastructure on it. And so in order to keep up with the demand and that was coming at us from customers, we kept feeling like we had to expand and add things, you know, so we go from one high tunnel to three, we end up deciding we need to go year round Um, because there's just a desire for it. So that means we need more cold storage areas so that we can hold different items at different temperatures. And so we just, that push to be building infrastructure while we were also farming and also we were building our own house for our own family. um, It was, that part was really tiring for us. Um, And so when, you know, and also we're, we're 3000 miles away from our whole entire family. So I, for me, it was a little bit of like a COVID break last year. I was like, I'm far from my family and I miss them and I'm tired from all this work on our house, on our actual physical house. But um, we just really decided that we wanted to be closer to our families. And um, we also want to spend a little more time with our kids. That's one thing, which we have three kids. They're 15, 12, and seven. And um I don't feel, I used to homeschool them. I used to have the winters off. We've now built the business into a place where it needs us more than I want to give to it. And we really couldn't quite figure out how to have a farm manager um, at the level, like the income level, paying us and, and, and making it all kind of work. We think it can work for somebody else, but we just, um, 
for us, we just felt like ready for a new adventure. And um, so we feel very confident that the business can continue. It's got an excellent customer base and strong commitment from those members and interest. And we don't have a ton of competition in our market either. We're kind of the main game in town. And so um, I feel as though farming served us so well for the time that we had it and that we needed it. And I feel like it's, for a while, I felt like it was giving up um, even considering it, but I also feel like it's okay to say that you want to do something else and to let somebody else have a fun time here too. And so that's, that's kind of what we're trying to envision for ourselves is how we transition and find somebody who will uh, take, take this on. I mean, they're coming into a situation where they really don't have to build any infrastructure and there are parts of the farm where there's revenue streams that are available, which were never available to us. For instance, the house that we built is, is a really gorgeous house with this amazing open attic, which is perfectly poised for like an Airbnb location, you know, like come here for a farm weekend, there will be farm fresh veggies in the fridge. Um, you know, we'll give you a farm tour. That's a revenue stream we never got to take advantage of because we literally just finished things. And um, <laughs> so I, I, there's so many possibilities here um, that I feel confident that there will be somebody who will see its value and be ready to take it on. Mm-hmm. And how much longer are you, would you plan on staying on for the transition? Uh, that I think will completely depend on the buyer. I, I feel very committed to making sure that my customers don't feel just taken aback by a sudden change and that they experience like a complete, you know, uh, difference in quality or things like that. Um, so I'm, I'm really committed to making sure that we make a smooth transition here so we are definitely interested in finding somebody this summer who's willing to come and start learning and, and taking it on. And so that sometime this fall, we can be ready to transition into something new. Gotcha. All right. Now you talked a little bit there about, you know, that whole mental thing of going through of like, you know, moving from on from the business. Um, what is your husband, you know, what was, what has been his thoughts through this? Um, he's, you know, he, he's like a, he's a Renaissance man. He is, he is so, it's so easy for him to just take on something new and jump into it uh, and totally remake himself. You know, he's a, he's a San Diego boy who came and completely became this, uh, and he's a musician. He's extremely intellectual, loves to read. And he came here and he taught himself how to fix all these tractors and, you know, taught himself all the stuff that we've done here. And I think he he's excited about the intellectual challenge of remaking himself again. And, you know, we both know exactly what we're giving up by leaving here. And, and we talk honestly with our kids about that, about what are we going to miss? You know, what's, what is it going to be hard to leave behind? And, and then we try to talk to about what are we, we know what we're giving up. Um, we're very clear on, you know, the things that we're going to miss. Like my, my seven-year-old daughter said to me the other day, like, am I going to have to wear shoes all the time now? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, well, definitely more than you do now, (laughs) you know, her shoes stay in the car (laughs) so that when we go places, she's got them and she knows where they are, you know? And so that's, that's going to be new and different for her, but Right now, she has to wait for mommy to have a break in her work day to drive her 20 minutes to see a friend, you know, 
And, um, and there's a possibility that we can live somewhere where she could run down the street or, you know, meet somebody at a park and it won't always have to be waiting on me to have time, um, to do that. And I'm looking forward to her having that opportunity as well. I was a kid who lived out in the country and then moved to this amazing street in Lexington, Kentucky, that just had so many kids and neighborhood park. And that's, that's a lovely part of my childhood that I really treasure. And so I, I would hope that my kids can kind of see those values too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Sunshine, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and kind of a little bit of, you know, where you're headed. Anything else you'd like to leave with us? I just want to mention that if anybody is curious about the software that we license, um, that's at happycsa.com. And um, I'm always happy to talk to farmers. I, I just love talking to farmers. It's like my, you know, shop talk is always fun. And um, it, it can meet a lot of needs for different farmers. And I think one of the problems with the existing platforms that are out there are that they're not necessarily financially accessible to the mid-sized farm. You know, if you're 50 to 100 or 125 members, some of those platforms can feel a little inaccessible. And so I, I really encourage people to think about uh, from the customer point of view that the, the demographic is changing, that um, customers do want some choice and that it doesn't have to be hard or scary, that it can be really easy to, to have a new software integrate into your life and actually make your life pretty nice and keep your customers pretty happy. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to checking back in with you in a couple of years and hearing where you're headed to next. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come on here and talk to you. I really enjoyed it. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about, you know, some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.